going to start with an anecdote, Eric, and it's going to explain why I'm going to do what I'm going to do. But apparently, Ozzy Osbourne was once in a music studio recording. And a I've heard of that guy, Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah. Gentleman had a poster on the wall of one Aleister Crowley. Ooh. If you're familiar with Ozzy's body of work, mm-hmm. got a song about Mr. Crowley. And uh, the guy in the recording studio, he was so excited to have Ozzy there and, and have this poster of Mr. Crowley on the wall. Mr. Crowley. So he says, you know, hey, check out my poster. And Ozzy, being Ozzy, and I will do my best to imitate Ozzy, basically said, <laughs> which in Ozzy speak was like, I don't know who the hell that guy is. <laughs> to which the guy was like, well, that's Mr. Crowley. Mr. Crowley. So tonight on Nightmares from the Lost Highway, we're going to talk about Mr. Crowley. Bum, bum, bum. Love it. Love it. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten, and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. So, born Edward Alexander Crowley, uh, the man would become known as a British occultist, ceremonial magician, drug fiend, sex addict, writer, poet, big game hunter, mountaineer, and, quote, traitor to the British people. Guy was was and something. I believe the most evil man in the world. Yeah. Uh, he was a practitioner of magic, spelt with a K, his spelling, called himself the Beast 666, and was publicly shunned in his own lifetime for his decadent lifestyle. He had few followers, and had followers his entire life, it seems like, but really became a, a cult figure after his death. So, this guy... Uh, wow. Yeah, As I started, he was out there. Again, my exposure to Mr. Crowley was somewhat limited to a song by Ozzy Osbourne. Mine as well. That's and, the first time I ever heard of him. Uh, a couple of little anecdotes what I'll, I'll try to sprinkle in here when we get to the right spot. So, But like you say, when you're going to talk about somebody, you start at the beginning. So October 12th, 1875, Edward Alexander Crowley is brought into the world. Uh, he's raised in a world of wealth and just spoiled beyond belief. He just really felt that he was better than those around him because of this. And, and, and when he was younger, he found himself rubbing elbows amongst some of Britain's most devout Christians, which would be somewhat ironic, obviously. Uh, his, that that uh, money came from the Crowley Brewery, which I did not realize. I didn't, yeah, I didn't see that. Uh, that was his grandfather, who also was Edward, actually Edward I, and then his father was Edward II, and then Alistair was Edward III. His father was an evangelist, and at first Crowley himself was devoted to Christianity, mm-hmm. mainly out of respect for his father. Now, his father died when he was just 11 years old, and this was sort of when he began to turn his back on the faith. He uh, started pointing out inconsistencies in the teachings of the Bible and decided to start defying Christian moral standards by smoking, masturbating, and having sex with prostitutes. Now, his father's religious aspect might be worth mentioning was actually what was called the Christian Plymouth Brethren. And they had three major rules. Uh, one, they believed the literal truth of the scriptures, uh, the second coming, 
And the third was very interesting. No upper level priests. Everyone in the church was equal. That's uh that's kind of odd. Yeah, kinda it, different. very strict household. They they weren't allowed toys. They they did not celebrate Christmas. There was no childhood books. There was none of that. Well, when he turned his back on the faith, his mother began to refer to him as the beast. And uh, that became a title that he would absolutely revel in. Oh, he yes. embraced it. As Bill had mentioned, Crowley really looked up to his father and considered him a hero, uh, holding him up on a pedestal. But as he grew older, uh, actually by the age of 11, Crowley's father died of cancer of the tongue. Ugh. And at this point, Alistair began to question everything. He began to fantasize about sexuality and torture in particular. His father seemed to have an obsession with death, which uh, he also kind of held on to and, and claimed. He later writes he envisioned what it would be like to be tortured by evil women in particular, those that were against his religion. Who, who doesn't want to be tortured <laughs> by evil women? I, I mean, I've had some experience. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, he, he was fantasizing about already early on this, this sexuality and, and this torture, which became a part of, of his magic cult culture. Uh, but he loved to think and draw about what horrible things could be done to him to self-torture and to torture others. He also, of course, began to experiment uh, with sexuality and the torture at age 11. Uh, he had been told, as many of us has probably heard, a cat has nine lives. So unlike most boys of his age, you know, 12 or 13, Alistair decided to take it a step further and actually act out on this and do an experiment. Uh, after all, if the cat had nine lives, it must surely be impossible to kill. So as he wrote in his own hand, he captured a cat. He used chloroform to put it out after forcing it to ingest a large amount of arsenic poison. He then took the limp body of the cat and began to cut it open and dissect it, revealing its entrails. He then finally bashed its skull in and broke several of its bones uh, in the cat's body. As if that wasn't enough, he continued thinking the cat has nine lives. He doused the cat uh, with, I'm assuming, lantern fuel or something, and lit the cat on fire, and then finally tossed it out of the upstairs window down into the street. He stated in his own pen, I believe the experiment was a success as I was able to use up all nine lives of the cat, and in fact, uh, was quite successful in killing the creature. Now, this led to, as you were saying, his mom referring to him as a beast. Uh, you can kind of see this kid is already flying off the rails doing this kind of stuff, and you could see why his mom might say, you know, quit acting like a beast, which he totally just, yeah, enthralled. Now, after, as the teenager, Alice Crowley continued to go down this path, he often fell back on his father's biblical teachings, especially with the Scarlet Lady and the Beast from Revelations. It was no secret he and his mother's already strained relationship was getting worse. Uh, his mother, who still held tight to that Christian Plymouth Brethren teachings, would scold Alistair in sinister ways and, of course, started calling him the Beast. Alistair loved this attention and the title. And he believed at this point in time he was literally becoming the beast out of Revelations and adopted that numeric identity of 666, calling himself at age 14 Antichrist of the Apocalypse. So he began using the name Alistair in college in 1895 at the age of about 20 years old, with uh, Alistair being the Gaelic form of the name Alexander. He just didn't feel like those names he'd been burdened with at birth were appropriate for who he really was. 
Uh, he developed a reputation for being a, a great chess player. Mm-hmm. And it was at this time he began to formulate secret plans of magical domination, part of which was uh, maintaining dominating-type relationships, borderline sadistic sexual relationships, with both men and women at this point. He started to delve deeper into the world of the occult. I believe he started getting some of his first volumes of magic. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of which was uh, written by A.E. White, which uh, of writer White Tarot fame. And I may have had a similar volume in my possession at one point in time, and I'll tell you, it was a very detailed tome talking about you know ancient magic rituals and the words and the, and the mo- motions and the symbols that you needed to use. I, I wish that I still had it and unfortunately got destroyed when I loaned it to a friend of mine, and I would love to get a copy of it again just for for what's in it not not because i believe in the magical aspect of it but because it's just so fascinating to me he was also infatuated uh, with the book of solomon and uh the whole king solomon yeah, and, and the keys of solomon are yes. referenced in that book um alistair was kind of in and out of college there for a while but when he returned later on uh, he thrived in english literature became fluent in many languages learning french german russian uh, as bill mentioned he excelled with chess uh, winning several competitions he became a successful uh, climber even reaching the heights of the alps uh, however he was later expelled from school by contracting sexual asexual disease from uh, some of the local prostitutes that he frequently visited uh, it was during this time he began to find sexual interest not only in women but also men He bragged he would have sex at least every 48 hours or just whenever it pleased him. He used prostitutes uh, so he would not have to leave his room with his books that he so loved and his research. And he could simply order a prostitute like milk to be left on the back porch. He decided to keep his homosexuality a secret due to some recent backlash with some other popular actors that came out, uh, and he stated he did not have time for such backlash in his own studies. Uh, So when he was thrown out of uh, the school, he basically washed his hands of it and said he didn't need that. He was going to basically school himself across the world. Well, yeah, at this time he began to travel far and wide using the inheritance from when his father had passed and also used that money to arrange for the publication of some of his writings. He briefly considered a career in diplomatic relations after leaving college, but uh, a brief illness triggered in him his understanding of morality and what he would say was, quote unquote, the futility of the human endeavor. I mean, it seems like maybe he had a, a bout of depression or something like that. Because again, let me, I think sometimes we all feel that it's its kind of futile. Yeah, but, yeah. We've um, all been there. But of course, he continued to pursue occultism. At this point, he joined the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn in 1898. And this was a secret society devoted to the study uh, and practice of the occult, metaphysics, and paranormal activity. But many, uh, many modern concepts of ritual and magic were inspired by the Golden Dawn, including those used in modern-day Wicca and Thelema, which we'll talk about a little bit later, obviously. But Crowley did hire a senior member of the this organization to be his live-in tutor on the subject, and they would experiment with ceremonial magic and the ritualistic use of drugs. Uh, however... I believe that was Samuel Mathers? I, I don't have a name, but it could, yeah, I mean... That's, I believe that was Samuel Mathers. Now, senior members considered him to be too libertine and refused him entry into the order's upper levels. So so at this point in time, Crowley leaves the Golden Dawn. He decides it's not worth his time. If they're not going to let him into the, the upper levels, then obviously he doesn't belong there. Now, there is um, a story here that I found, and I wasn't really sure how much I wanted to talk about it. But apparently the Golden Dawn had other members. If Crowley could be labeled a black magician, then there were white magicians amongst mm-hmm. the Golden Dawn. Mm-hmm. And supposedly... 
when he left, he he came to the steps and he conf- was confronted by two of the white mages, which. I mean, a very Harry Potter-esque kind of wizard's battle ensued in which a vampiric creature was summoned by the the white mages to attack Crowley, and there were actually pieces of his flesh that were devoured by the beast. And Straight out of that scene in Harry Potter. However, one witness did write that it was more or less the guy from the, the Golden Dawn showed up with what would you would call a bouncer. And Crowley tried to get in, and they basically told him to f off. And, 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 <laughs> and was drugs anyway. may or may not have been yeah. involved, which would so, you know, add some yeah. different aspects to that. So after leaving the Golden Dawn, Crowley just decides to leave Europe. It was about this time a former priest of the Golden Dawn by the name of Mathers that we had talked about was struggling to keep control of his own chapter of the Golden Dawn that was there in London. Alistair uh, reached out to Mathers in order to become enlightened to reach his next level within that organization since he'd kind of been shunned by a different chapter. And basically Mathers needed Crowley's money and Crowley needed Mathers' support. Uh, So the two kind of performed this highest level of rights and advanced Alistair to the grand level Magus. Uh, That was just in their little local chapter. Now, as it would occur, Crowley thinking, okay, well, I've accomplished this. I got shunned by these people, but now I went to a different chapter and I, you know, I've overridden them. So he goes in and he's, he's wanting to pick up his paperwork, his certification that he has reached this, you know, and he has his paperwork from the, the other chapter. Yeah, that didn't work out too well. The, the people <laughs> said, you know, we already basically told you to get the out of here. We meant it. Get the out of here now. We don't care what you've got from another chapter. We're not honoring it. So... This is a first glimpse of of Alistair's thinking, I thought. I I definitely wanted to throw this in. He takes matters into his own hands uh, and schemed a way to get what he wanted once again because he's a a spoiled little brat. (laughs) Uh, He watched the shrine for many days, literally like stakeout, I'm envisioning. And when it was left with only a few of the lowest members present, he made his move. He simply entered. Uh, stating his new title of Grand Magus and showed his paperwork and demanded one of the low levels escort him to the inner sanctum or he would suffer the consequences, which apparently worked. Um, This person gave him full access inside. He then called for the locks to be changed and locked himself (laughs) inside the inner sanctum. Over the next several days, members heard about what Crowley had done and demanded, uh, you know, he was demanding they honor his title and bow to him or he would evict all of them and strip them of their titles down to the lowest level, uh, pulling their former degrees away from them. Everything was working out pretty good for Mr. Crowley, uh, with only a few that dare challenge him. And I'm sure it's probably some of those same guys that told him to get (laughs) out of here. Uh, However, those few went to the police and demanded they arrest him for trespassing because they had proof of ownership and he was literally trespassing. So Mr. Crowley was removed, kicking and screaming, I'm sure quite literally, from the premises. <laughs> now, he later stated uh, it was it was his last association he would have with the Golden Dawn, but he joked and stated, but of course that was really the demise of the Golden Dawn Temple as well because they didn't have me and they soon crumbled. This This man was a big feeler. Well, again, a child of wealth and, and being spoiled, he just probably felt he was entitled to anything he wanted. So so after the falling out with the Golden Dawn, Crowley decided to leave Europe uh, where he, you know, he would travel to Mexico and then to Japan, Hong Kong, Ceylon, and India. This man traveled everywhere. I think during his time in Mexico, he, he that was when he spent time as a big game hunter, which I don't know how much big game you got in Mexico, but yeah. 
Now, in India, he would begin to practice Raja Yoga, a Hindu meditation technique. Uh, He would also accompany mountaineers in the first attempt to climb K2 in 1902. So that was kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. So later in 1902, he, he settles in Paris. And there he immerses himself in the art world, and it is there that he would meet his future wife. Uh, His friend Gerald Kelly introduces him to his sister Rose, and their marriage begins as one of convenience just simply to prevent her from entering into an arranged marriage. So it seemed noble enough. Uh, They would fall in love, actually. And for a time, he would set aside his profane writings and actually pen several love poems for her. Oh, that's sweet. They seemed like the perfect pair at at first. Uh, she would follow him on his journeys and, and join in his schemes. <laughs> and through her, he found the inspiration to begin his own religion. While meditating, she informed him that the Egyptian god Horus was waiting for him in Egypt. Yes. So in 1904, they traveled to Egypt. And there he reported the mystical experiences that, that, that led him to, to write the Book of Law. Now, when he went to Egypt, he didn't just go as Aleister Crowley and wife Rose. They portrayed themselves, self-proclaimed, as prince and princess. <laughs> Again, seeking that attention. Yeah. Uh, so the Book of Law is a, a prose poem which he claimed was dictated to him by a discarnate being called Iwas, with Iwas being the personal messenger of Horus. And it contains his most famous teaching, quote, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. So basically, just do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. You know, whatever. Uh, And he made this the basis of a a new religion that he would call Thelema, which Thelema was the Greek word for will. So it seems pretty, you know, do what you will. Now, the name Iwas, he considers as a guardian angel that follows him through the rest of his life uh, from Egypt. So the Book of Law is accepted as scripture by the Ordo Templi Orientis, which is a occult initiatory organization uh, with one of the major features and core teachings being its... Uh, practice of sex magic, which seems to be Alistair's thing. Oh, that's definitely his thing. Uh, so in 1907, he founds his own order, uh, II, which if you see it written, it's an A and then three little dots in a triangle formation and then an A and three little dots, but it's pronounced II. The initials stood for the Latin words for silver star. Crowley uh, actually returned to seek out his good friend and former priest, Alan Bennett, in which uh, he had taught him some of the dark magic arts earlier on in the Golden Dawn in in his life. He had told Bennett what had happened uh, at the whole Golden Dawn order and that he had you know, been traveling the world, seeking new information, new enlightenment. Uh, But he had came to seek wisdom and further advancements in the ways of yoga. Again, this man... He he was studying anything and everything he could from all yeah, cultures, all, of, all of forms life. of mysticism and magic. Uh, you know, he, he he wanted to reach this new level of enlightenment, uh, drawing knowledge from India, uh, which sparked Crowley's own interest there. Now Crowley had returned a couple years later after he went to India, and I thought this was humorous. He he went again to go find Alan Bennett, who ironically felt he had reached the height, a plateau of enlightenment, and became a monk. Uh, this Alan Bennett. So uh, he finds his bungalow and goes and he knocks upon Alan Bennett's uh, door and there's no response. So, you know, he kind of looks around and he finds uh, a fresh plate of food that is on the windowsill of the house. So he knows, well, he's, he's got to be here. So he turns the knob and it's not locked. So he goes, I, I, I entered. Uh, he goes, I suddenly then realized why I was unable to, you know, get Alan to answer the door. There within, you know, 10 feet of the entrance of the door, Bennett was floating, hovering a five foot off the ground. And, you know, he had he had achieved that ultimate enlightenment as a monk uh, and he was in true meditation. 
thought that was interesting. So in 1909, he starts spreading the teachings of I.I. in the periodical, the Equinox. And uh, that's a dated term, periodical. If you don't know what that is, that'd be like a magazine or something like that, a newspaper. Something similar that comes out on a periodic basis. Uh, the organization was dedicated to the advancement of humanity uh, through the perfection of the individual on every plane. So it seems like he was pursuing this you know, ultimate enlightenment that will allow you to achieve perfection. While he was consumed with spreading the words of Horace, his wife was consumed with a different problem, and she had descended into full-blown alcoholism by this point in time. Mm -hmm. uh, they had a daughter, uh, Lilith, who died of typhoid in 1906. And don't ask us to say her full name. Well, I didn't, didn't even see her full name. I, I will attempt it, just for the fun. Nuat Ma Emator Hecte Safaro Jezebel Lilith Crowley. Wow. We'll That's just call her Lilith. Uh, now, Crowley blamed her death on Rose's inability to manage herself. You know, obviously, if she's an alcoholic, she's not taking care of herself. How can she take care of her family? Uh, they would have another daughter, Lola. Uh, Lola would, of course, be left with Rose when the couple divorced in 1909. And then Rose would be committed to an institution in 1911. Now, Lola's uh, full name was Lola Zaza. Yeah. Zaza. Zaza. Well, we, we talked about the Ouija board We thing. talked a little bit about that apparently, on the previous podcast. Crowley himself was fascinated with talking boards, too. Obviously, he pursued all that kind of thing. He also had a son, uh, Randall Gare Dory. That was uh, 1937. He was one of his many mistresses, uh, Patricia Dutry uh, McAlpine. And we talk about, we, we will get to it. This man had a lot of children. We'll just put it that way, with a lot of different women. So after divorcing Rose, um, Alistair again decided to travel. He floated from city to city for quite a while. Uh, during World War One, he moved to the United States, where he contributed to a pro-German newspaper called The Fatherland. Uh, after the war, he moved to Cefalu in Italy. And this was kind of a significant time in his life. Uh, there he converted a house into uh, a sanctuary he called the a Abbey of Thelema. And he declared himself, and I'm going to try to say this right, Ipsisismus, or Beyond the Gods, in 1921. Now, following the death of an English follower in Sicily, after allegedly participating in a sacrilegious ritual that is said to have included the consumption of the blood of a cat, people started to turn on him. Uh, this led to him being denounced by the British press as the wickedest man in the world. Yeah, here we go. Now, he would have denied this claim uh, himself. He he claimed that his work was, was truly good because it was freeing man from his earthly rules. Uh, he would later be expelled from Italy in 1923 during the rule of the fascist Mussolini because even the fascists were like, Dude, the stuff you're doing is wrong. Yeah, this is messed up. They they kicked him out. The Abbey was closed. His followers were dispersed. Now, right about that time, he wrote one of his many books. Uh, this one I thought was quite fitting. The Diary of a Drug Fiend. Yes, I uh, saw that. Uh, which he hoped to sell for some much-needed money. You know, at this point, he had burned through his father's inheritance, his mother's inheritance, and actually two aunts' inheritance. So this was considered his, a collection of his most esteemed insight and teachings. He struggled for a while, but he did find a publisher who paid him a substantial forward for that book, The Diary of a Drug Fiend. And the publisher, I, I thought this was maybe ingenious is not the best word, but <laughs> he embraced the whole scam that, or the scandal that Aleister Crowley that you were just talking about was going through the whole dark arts, you know, knowing there would be backlash. So to answer this, he took out many ads in the local newspaper and literally like the title was orgies in Sicily, followed by the words, the beast six, six, six in coming days. Another wave of uh, ads for advertising would appear with a 
photo of Mr. Crowley with a shaven head and the number 666 actually on his forehead. The publicity stint stunt worked as many of the followers now flocked to the mad magician's doorstep trying to find him. This is crazy, crazy advertising that that works. But he had left uh, a gentleman by the name of Raul, who was a follower, and his, I, I guess you would say loosely, fiance, Betty May, uh, as followers into uh, his former estate when he moved to Paris. I wanted to put this in here because it kind of puts you into perspective. You know, Aleister Crowley was struggling to take care of himself. Okay, we'll put that out there. He had some followers back there. Well, meanwhile, back at the Abbey estate that Crowley had left uh, to a friend and a handful of followers, one faithful follower, Raoul, and his, I guess you would say his fiance Betty May, continued to practice the dark arts with Crowley and sex magic, with increasing amounts of heroin added. They found themselves almost starving as the estate crumbled around them, literally holes in the roof, uh, windows broken, little or no money to survive on. However, Raoul was dedicated and believed the magics and the sex and drugs would finally lead him, like his master, to a better, more enlightened life. His health continued to decline with self-induced heroin trips. Uh, He made Betty May promise that she would not seek out help from the authorities. She would not go to them and she would keep everything a secret. The remaining members of the chapter forced her to sign an affidavit, even swearing to her secrecy over everything that was going on with Raoul. After a few weeks of nearly starving and self-medicating, Raoul finally passed away, leading to a very scandalous backlash on the living conditions Crowley had left them in. Uh, Young Betty May made a break for it, uh, as she probably should have, and fled the abbey, leaving the cult to never return again, trying to make her way to England. Now, that backlash was embraced even more by Alistair's new publisher with that book, The uh, Diary of a Drug Fiend. The publisher sought out Betty before she actually got on the train to go to England and got an exclusive interview uh, that they manipulated and tweaked a little bit more to their liking. Uh, Titles and articles uh, would come out saying Crowley, the depraved landlord of Sicily. The story stated the most evil man in the world lured young victims into his trap where he locked them up and left them to die. Another story would be published just a week later after that one, and this time with a glimpse of a failed mountain climb from years back. Bill had mentioned the K2 oh. mountain. Yeah, there was another expedition where I believe some of the some of them were caught in a they didn't avalanche. Make it, they didn't make it out. And, and Crowley heard their cries for help, and he's like, told you not to go that way, and just completely ignored them. Yes. Uh, later on in a confidential interview, Crowley stated that for the first time, he felt fear on that mountainside. And while he heard the screams of those that, that, that followed him, he simply just left them. Yeah. Uh, but this story kind of possibly added a little bit more to that. Not only that he abandoned them, but not before practicing sex magic, possibly on the dead bodies, as well as practicing cannibalism. So when Ozzy asked, could you talk to the dead? And that wasn't all he was doing. No, he was he was doing a little <laughs> bit more than talking to him, I believe. Um, oh, I should not have said that. Uh, the story, you know, allured that Crowley obviously had led these followers up the mountain and once again abandoned them, left them, you know, to be forgotten. And then at that point, yeah, in April twenty third, nineteen twenty three, the law stepped in and and uh, Palermo, Italy, and excommunicated to get them out of there. Well, in the late twenties, 
he would marry again, this time to a Nicaraguan woman named uh, Maria Teresa Sanchez. But yeah, like you said, by this point, he had exhausted his inheritances and he could no longer travel like he used to. So I think finally he moved back to England in the early 30s. Well, Crowley had continually had a handful of devout followers. Uh, They continued to perform and even charge admission to the public to watch some of their tamer, yet still provocative practices to help earn some money. Crowley had brought in a new devout follower, uh, a woman by the name of Pauline Pierce. Uh, She was from America. Now, she often uh, accompanied him up on the stage and performed these rites and rituals that they would charge money for. In 1924, Crowley and Pauline Pierce returned back to America from Italy. This was in early October 24, and eight months later, on June 8, 1925, she gave birth to a little girl named Barbara Pierce. Now, this is an interesting tidbit. It is not able to be proved because, as we kind of stated, Mr. Crowley got around. He slept (laughs) with a lot of women, had a lot of illegitimate children. But the name Barbara Pierce may mean something to a few of you out there. Barbara would later marry George H.W. Bush, who eventually became the 41st president of the United States. Well... Then, of course, they had a son, George W. Bush, who became the 43rd president of the United States. So while there was still some uncertainty, and it is hard to prove, but you might ask, could the president, George W. Bush's grandfather, truly be the most evil man in the world? I mean, with today's political climate. Oh. So during World War II, Crowley had the opportunity to meet several figures of prominence, such as Ian Fleming, who's the creator of James Bond, and uh, Roald Dahl, who you know as the author of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, yes. Now, a lot of people thought he worked for British intelligence because a lot of places he would end up would be places that would later be revealed to be under investigation by the British. You never officially worked for the British uh, military in any capacity. He would offer his services at one point to the British Naval Intelligence Division, but they turned him down. They didn't want to be associated with him in any way. As most people were. Now, sometime along this point, uh, Crowley took on a new follower, and I'm probably going to butcher the name, but I believe it's Israel Bagarde. Uh, In quite simple effects, he was a cash cow uh, to Mr. Crowley, who was still needing money seemed to be needing money most of his life, Uh, he took this gentleman on as his private secretary. During this time frame, Crowley finished his next book called Magic, spelt M-A-G-I-C-K, the old way, Magic, the Theory of Practice. This was the first book published in centuries on what was considered alleged true practices of magic. Uh, And times were actually quite good for Mr. Crowley at this point in time. However, once again, it was short-lived. When police approached Crowley's apartment uh, with uh, excommunication orders for Crowley and this Israel Bagardi and Maria de Merte, or de Armare, I believe is how you pronounce it. But Crowley, of course, he just published this book and he was living high on the hog and he didn't want to leave. So he began to kind of once again plot and twist things around. He decided he wanted to stay and bask in that newfound glory. Now, Israel later went on the record stating, The cunning old fox took Maria and myself to the train station where we were swept off to Germany. In return, Alistair stated, I will come to you in a few days after I finalize things. However, he went to a doctor friend and wrote him a letter of ill health, making it unlawful for him to be able to travel. 
so he could not be excommunicated. So Crowley (laughs) got to stay and flushed us away, as he was saying. Funny how things would work out, though, because Maria started then sharing with Israel, this gentleman who had become the cash cow, helping him and his personal secretary, how she was fed up with the way Crowley beat her and treated her and sodomized her. Now, the two, Israel and Maria, Crowley's former scarlet lady, I might add, would fall in love. Israel shared this information with Crowley, which I thought was a gutsy, ballsy kind of move. Go to the boss and say, hey, I know she was yours. You swept us away to Germany. We fell in love. We've been having you know, sex magic, and, and I just wanted to come clean with you. Ironically, Crowley's like, I commend you for that. Thank you for addressing her and taking care of her in my absence. Well, why wouldn't he? I mean, do, do what you will. Do what you will, I guess, truly. Now, a, a short period later, Crowley does ask Maria to marry him, and she does. So he takes her back, and then, unfortunately, within months, she tried to commit suicide. So I think she maybe tried to escape and got lured back in, tried to commit suicide, ended up being institutionalized, where she would die just a few years later. Uh, Now, Crowley just continued to move on to find another woman. Basically, as followers turned against him, he would sour to some, he'd move to different areas. He moved to Paris, where for a while he found a woman named Christian, uh, Christina Foyle of the famous Foyle bookstore chains. There, Crowley was invited in to share his philosophy of magics to the most elite. Shortly thereafter, he befriended another woman, Nancy Cunob, a wealthy shipping heiress. Some years later, Crowley uh, had been briefly acquainted with a a lady by the name of Nina Hamlet. Uh, She was a model and a painter. Now, in 1932, Nina published her memoirs, which she included a great deal of her time that she spent with Crowley, where she stated they together performed dark arts and the sexual magic. She also claimed her young baby disappeared during that same time frame, never to be found alluding to possible human sacrifice. Crowley was outraged. He issued a court proceedings to cease and desist with any further publications of this book. And in 1934, Crowley was found in court, and he was asked if he called himself 666, to which he smiled and said, yes, indeed. (laughs) They asked again, the beast, do you call yourself and address yourself as the beast? which he again stated, yes. The court asked him, well, if these are the confessed titles that you yourself claim, would you not agree you fit the description of what Nina Hamlet has stated and possibly involved with the mysterious vanishing of her daughter? Crowley mocked the court, saying, 666 simply means sunlight. So you could also call me a little ray of sunshine, to which the entire court bellowed out and laughed. Crowley lost his case, by the way. The judge did not find the humor in it, and he ended up losing everything as it was stripped from him, and once again, he was literally living on the streets. Yeah, towards towards the end, he was impoverished, disgraced, and nearly skeletal from heroin use. He never lacked for followers. Like you said, he fathered several children, and for some reason was still in the man as a medium and a, and a magus unto the end. Um, his final notable achievement was publication of the Book of Thoth in 1944, 
in which he interpreted a new tarot deck called the Thoth, which he designed in collaboration with artist Frida Harris. Now, this would be, of course, counter to the Rider Waite tarot deck that we're familiar with by E.A. Waite. And I know that I've read this anecdote before. I couldn't find it uh, when I was doing the research. But, you know, at, at some point, Crowley and Waite actually engaged in spiritual warfare with one another where they would send oh, yes. allegedly, you know, spiritual entities across continents to track down and, and harass each other with. Yeah, I remember Crowley stating that he'd sent this uh, witch, almost like a succubus, yeah, uh, that came yeah. to his dinner table, and, and he said, I turned and I saw this old weathered hag, and she touched me, and I felt the life draining from my body, almost like a vampire. Yeah. And then she turned into a beautiful, bosomed woman, <laughs> which he joked and said, I would have had sex with either one of them. Yeah, I mean, that would have been Crowley, right? Yeah, yeah. So, he died in poverty and obscurity in an English rooming house in Hastings in 1947. Uh, the cause of death was listed as chronic bronchitis. His funeral was dubbed the Black Mass, and it was attended by only a few of his closest friends and associates. And that kind of closes the book on an interesting, evil, kind of sad character. I I will say the more I dove into this, I had no idea there was so much here. Uh, I mean, I, I, I quickly come across pages and pages. One, one uh, YouTuber actually stated, if you're looking into Aleister Crowley, you're going to find truckloads of books written about him and memoirs and biographies of people who knew him and or were affected. That, that was right spot on. There's a lot of speculation. Uh, again, very hard to prove, but figures like Winston Churchill, uh, it is speculated that Alistair actually gave Winston Churchill the V for victory concept that he was known for. Hitler, that he it is alleged that he provided readings and predictions which helped Hitler throughout the war. At one point, it's actually even speculated the Nazi swastika was a symbol that Crowley shared, and that's where the swastika actually came from. Then, of course, we have the whole uh, Jack Parsons, uh, the rocket missile engineer. He came to be a high priest in Crowley's church, and he himself brought in a new member to the church, uh, Lafayette Ron Hubbard, uh, who later went on to form the Church of Scientology. Uh, Together, Jack Parsons and Lafayette Ron Hubbard stated they had sexual acts and dark magic that they practiced together. So, how many kids did this man really have? How many lives did he touch? And maybe that sounds too affectionately because, uh, yeah, he didn't want to be touched by Aleister Crowley. But this man's legacy uh, is just like a great crater into the abyss. And it seemed like he affected a lot of people very negatively. Just a very disturbed individual. Well, we hope that you enjoyed this tour of Aleister Crowley, just another example of what you might find on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Thanks for listening. I'm going to do it. I'm going to go all out, just so you know. Okay. It's going to be stupid. Go for it. So, tonight on Nightmares from the Lost Highway, we're going to talk about Mr. Crowley. Boom, boom, boom. Love it. Love it. We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Ravensloft. That's our family shop here located in uh, Lebanon, Missouri. 
It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for, again, supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, (laughs) using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, and I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.